Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. The apostles performed... Many miraculous signs. This is one of those pivotal passages of Scripture. I think it is very important because of where we find it in the New Testament in the days of the early church. There was obviously a time when great wonders were happening in the midst of the church, but this is a great warning to the church that God takes sin seriously. Now, the reason that video clip began in verse 36 is because really that's where the story begins. You have to back up into chapter 4 and uh, verse 36 to get the setting for what happens and why the seriousness of what happens beginning in chapter 5. You remember that the chapter divisions and verses were added uh, hundreds of years after the scriptures were written. Someone has said that the reason they were chapters and verses were added they were added by laymen so preachers would know when to shut up. Um, but that being the case, I'm still going to talk. So um, what, what we want to look at tonight is this danger of bearing a false witness. And I don't know that there's not a one of us who doesn't know someone that is obviously, even blatantly, living a lie when it comes to their profession of faith. Their profession and their walk do not match. And I would encourage you, not because I'm trying to sell tapes, but you know somebody that God's going to speak to your heart, either about you or someone you know, that they need to listen to this message because they are quite honestly in danger. They are endangering their own lives 
by bearing a false witness before this church or some other church, before this group or some other group about the way they live, what they say they believe, and how they actually live. Now this is a sharp, sharp change in the book of Acts. We've seen the beginning of the church, and all of a sudden, without warning, this situation comes up, and God is working, and yet Satan is also working. The people are being converted, and the body is growing, and their lives are being changed, and they're, they're coming together, and they're sharing all things in common. But in the midst of any and every work of God, Satan is doing a work. Now, we need to understand that. That anytime God is working, Satan is also working, and he will vary his methods of attack until he finds one that works. And so I want you to back up to chapter 3. And by the chapter 3, by the heading of chapter 3, I want you to write on chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6 a key word. In chapter 3, Satan tries to stop the church through intimidation. I'll just threaten them. And when I threaten them, they'll back off. So he tries to stop the body of Christ by intimidating it. We see that, by the way, going on in our society today. In chapter 4, he seeks to stop the body through persecution. Now he's realize that intimidation will not work, and so he's beginning to persecute the church so that through persecution, the gospel will maybe stop. In chapter 5, there's infiltration. Infiltration. The devil joins churches too, and he sends people to join churches. In chapter 6 by division, and we'll get to that next week. In chapter 6, he starts to divide. Here's what he's doing in chapter 5. In chapter 5, here's Satan's strategy. If I cannot conquer them, I will corrupt them. If I can't conquer them, I'll corrupt them. If I weaken them by corrupting them, then I can defeat them. If I can just get inside, and so here Barnabas has sold everything, and he's given it to the church. And right out of that, we come into chapter 5 with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now you take it to the bank. Any church where God is working, any church where God's Spirit is moving, any church where people are being saved and baptized, any church where truth is being taught, do not ever think that on any day or of any moment of any day that the devil is not strategizing on how he is going to stop that church. That's why we are to be people of prayer. Because the devil will look for a strategy, look for a way, look for a person or a group of people that he can bring into that church or surround that church or intimidate that church in such a way that that church becomes ineffective in her witness. Now, Ananias and Sapphira did contradictory to what the spirit of Barnabas did. Barnabas gave willingly. He gave freely. His giving was an act of surrender 
Their giving was an act of showing off. Barnabas did it out of love. They did it for attention. Nobody told them they had to give. Nobody demanded of them that they do it. And so their giving was hypocritical. Now, sanctified imagination, let me tell you how I think that happened. I think Ananias and Sapphira went home from church that Sunday and said, you know what, I am so tired of hearing about Barnabas. Barnabas this and Barnabas that. Everything's about Barnabas. Barnabas is a servant. Barnabas is an encourager. Barnabas is a giver. Barnabas is, you know, Barnabas is the deacon and Barnabas is the head of this group. And Barnabas, I'm sick of hearing about Barnabas. I wonder what we could do so that people would talk about us like they talk about Barnabas. I don't think Ananias and Sapphira had roast preacher for lunch. I think they had roast Barnabas for lunch. And they were so fed up with how this praise was coming to Barnabas and this honor was coming to him because his lifestyle merited that kind of recognition. He was somebody to point out and say, hey, you want to see what somebody following Christ looks like? Look at Barnabas. Look at his life. And Ananias and Sapphira began to say, you know, I wonder what we could do that would make people look at us and go, now that's a great church member. That's an impressive person. Wow, look at them. When they walked by, so people would talk in the hallways and say, boy, you know, they're something. They really are something. We're impressed with them. You see, the point of the story is not that Ananias and Sapphira died. Write it down somewhere. The point of the story is that the atmosphere of the church was so strong in the Spirit that sin and the Spirit could not coexist in the same room. Now that's revival, that's awakening, that's walking in the fullness of the Spirit, whatever you want to call it. But the atmosphere of the church was so strong the holiness of God was so strong in this early church among new believers that in that environment, the spirit and sin could not coexist. Something had to go. Either sin had to go or the spirit was going to go. But the spirit will not bear witness to sin. The spirit will not bear witness to a false spirit. And so we find a sin of insincerity, and it's mentioned in verse 2, verse 3, verse 8, and verse 9. And I want you to see several things here. First of all, in verse 3, it was inspired by the devil. It was inspired by the devil. Satan filled your heart. By the way, that filled is the same word for the filling of the Spirit. Just as some were full of the Holy Spirit of God, Ananias and Sapphira, their hearts were filled with the devil. The devil had inspired this. It's a passive voice in the Greek, which means they gave their consent. In other words, the devil tempted them with an opportunity to be recognized, with an opportunity to get favor, with an opportunity to be important, and they took it. And they said, you know, that's a good offer. We'll take that. They consented to let the devil do that. And this is one of the major tools of the devil. Pretend that you're more committed than you really are. 
One of the major tools, I think, and one of the reasons we don't have revival, and by the way, one of the reasons we have empty seats tonight is because every Sunday morning we have people who pretend they are more committed than they really are. You know, don't tell me you love God and you never come back to church on Sunday night. I, ne I would never take advice from anybody who's not faithful to the church because I think they're pretending. My automatic assumption is they're pretending because if they were faithful to God, they'd be faithful to the thing that God loved and died for. I don't hear any amens. There ought to be some amens for that. I, you know, don't, don't tell me that you're faithful when it's convenient. God didn't come when it was convenient. He came in the fullness of time. He came to do the Father's will. And you and I need to understand that there's this attitude that comes over sometimes that says, you know, I can pretend to be something that I'm not. And that's always inspired by the devil. Because the Holy Spirit will inspire us to repent of being something that we're not or pretending to be something that we're not. And there's one reason why I believe the devil does that. Pride. He appeals to the pride of man. He appeals to man's flesh. Satan has entered your heart, has filled your heart, because you see, pride and humility can't dwell together just like sin and the Spirit can't dwell together. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5 says, All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Adrian Rogers says, Pride is what made the devil the devil. And by the way, pride is what makes people act like the devil. Pride is what makes people act like the devil. Because they think that there's something when God says we're nothing apart from Christ. So first of all, it was initiated by the devil. Secondly, verses 4 and 9, it was premeditated. It was premeditated. Now look at this question. Why have you agreed together? That word means conspired together conspired together? Why have you planned all of this out and conspired together? You see, we don't drift into disobedience. Disobedience is a choice for us. It's a choice. We choose to disobey God. Why have you conspired together? Now, remember the story. Ananias has shown up. He's made sure he's there. He's glad-handed. He's talking to everybody. And Sapphira comes in. She's late. She's, she's got her new dress on, and she's got her new hat, and she's, she's all decked out to the nines, and she's fashionably late so that when she parades into the church and when she walks down the center aisle, everybody goes, oh, there's Sapphira. Ananias and Sapphira, they gave so much money. Oh, oh, Lord, let us just touch the hem of her new designer dress. And she thought she was going to walk in and get an applause because all that she had done for God, what she got was a surprise. Your husband, we just carried him out and did last rites over him, and he's gone, and you're about to go with him. It was premeditated. Thirdly, it was lip service. It was pretension. Now, their sin was not the gift Remember, nobody asked them to give this gift. Their sin was not the gift. It was pretending that the gift was more than it really was. Their sin was not that they didn't give, but that they didn't give everything they said they gave. Their sin was that they pretended to give everything. Now, it, it, was, every, it was theirs to give. 
whatever they wanted to give. They sold this piece of land. They, they came together and they said, you know, this is what we're going to do. And then they told a lie about what they were doing. They were proclaiming a level of devotion that was far above what they were actually doing. And pride always leads to pretense. If I'm proud and if I'm arrogant, it will always lead me to be pretentious and to put on a face and to put on a mask. And, and apparently, I don't know that he's changed. I don't find anywhere in the Word. Apparently, God takes sin seriously. Uh, apparently, God takes hypocrisy seriously. I don't know. Maybe your Bible and your translation reads some, something different. Maybe they just had the flu or a mild case of SARS and got over it. But my Bible says they dropped dead. Why? Because they were pretending to be something that they were not. Could I suggest to you that God is no less serious on this night in 2003 than He was on that night in 33 or 34 A.D. He's no less serious about sin now than He was then. I want you to write down this quote somewhere. You ought to write it down where you can remember it. Ron Dunn said, when hypocrisy invades the church, you fail at even the slightest task. When hypocrisy invades the church, you fail at even the slightest task. Why with so many millions of people that go to church in America on Sundays, is the church not making any difference? And why are we not being salt and light? And why are we corrupt? And why are we no different than the world? I tell you, because we got churches full of hypocrites pretending to be something that they're not. Pretending that they're on their way to heaven, but they're living like they're on their way to hell. But at church, they pretend. They put on a mask. They put on a front. They wear a facade. They play act. That's what the word hypocrite means. Now you can call it bad decision making if you want to. God calls it hypocrisy. There's also a spirit of deception in verse 3 and verse 4 and verse 9. Verse 3, why has Satan filled your heart? Now do you see what he says? He doesn't say to lie to the apostles or to lie to the preacher. Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? I got to tell you, we, we've had times when we've had people bring commitment cards down to the altar and people have prayed. And I remember one time we had numerous commitment cards, blank. Not only no amount on them, no name on them. Somebody paraded down the aisles of the church of God in the house of God, where we sing praises to the name of God and dropped a card down to be seen of men to pretend that I'm making a commitment that I'm not making. Now, you better be glad God doesn't do now what He did in Ananias and Sapphira because we'd have had some funerals right there in that service, about 20. He didn't say you lied to the finance committee. He didn't say you lied to the building committee. He didn't say you lied to the preacher. He said, you have lied to the Holy Spirit of God. 
I think that's more serious than lying to me. You can lie to me all day long. That's okay. But when we start lying to God, we've way, way, way overstepped the line. Look at what he says in verse 4, the last part. You have not lied to men, but God. Verse 9. Why is it that you have agreed together, conspired together, to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Basically, what he's saying in there is, we're going to lie about this, and I don't think that God's going to do anything to us. I think we can get by with it. I think we can get by with this. And Satan always appears as an angel of light. He always appears as a fake, and he always sees a genuine work of God like in Barnabas, and he tries to counterfeit it with a fake work like in Ananias and Sapphira. How does he do that today? Well, let me give you three ways. First of all, he will counterfeit the supernatural. Satan will counterfeit the supernatural. Remember Moses? Every time Moses performed a miracle, the magicians of Egypt would come by and duplicate it. By the way, the devil can perform miracles. You understand that? He, now, he's not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful, but he can perform miracles. Uh, when God gives a legitimate gift, Satan will counterfeit it with something that's illegitimate. He, he will counterfeit the supernatural. God calls somebody to preach. You know what the devil does? The devil calls people to preach, to fill the pulpit, to deny the gospel, to deny the blood, to deny the cross, to deny the resurrection, to deny the virgin birth. And there are thousands of churches filled with people who are ordained, who are called preachers, and they're preachers of the devil. They're preaching people to hell because they're not preaching the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when God calls a preacher, guess what Satan does? Satan looks for somebody that wants to just stand up in front of people to be seen by men, to be applauded. They think, well, that's a nice job. I think I'd like to have that job. And the devil calls a preacher, and a church calls that preacher, and he's a devil's preacher. He's not God's preacher because he doesn't preach the truth of God. Secondly, not only will Satan counterfeit the supernatural, Secondly, he will overemphasize some truth. Now, the problem is much of the words like a two-edged sword and a two-sided coin. And I want to give you my favorite Warren Wiersbe quote. Blessed are the balanced. Blessed are the balanced. The devil will get in a church and cause confusion by overemphasizing some truth. Now, stay with me right here, okay? One of the signs of immaturity in the church is when we cannot quote, cope with both sides of a truth, we begin to emphasize one and exclude the other. For instance... Everybody wants to talk about heaven, but nobody wants to hear a preacher preach on hell anymore. That's not talk about hell. Jesus talked about hell. I guess it was important or he wouldn't have brought it up. We want to talk about intimacy with God, but sometimes we don't want to talk about the holiness of God. And there are churches that are so swung on a pendulum over toward intimacy with God and relationship with God that they've lost their awe and fear of God and reverence of God, that He is a holy God who is seated on the throne. 
You can take it in any area. You can take it on a doctrine. You can take it on the doctrine of, of, of judgment of sin and forget about the grace of God. You, you just take it. Anything. If we're immature and if we're not balanced, what we will do is we will get on something that we like and we won't balance it out with the other side of that truth, the other side of that coin. There are no one-sided coins and there are no one-sided truths. There are two sides and they balance each other. Jesus talked about heaven and He talked about hell. He talked about grace and He talked about judgment. He talked about light and He talked about darkness. He talked about salt and He talked about decay. He talked about the saved and He talked about the lost. You can't just do one. Because to have balance, we have to look at the whole gamut of what God says to us. And what happens is when we get out of balance, the devil shouts, Amen. I mean, a church that's out of balance, the devil gets excited about it. Because that church will get focused in on itself. And the body will not be edified and people will get upset. And here's what happens. One group will start emphasizing this over here and they'll get over here and they'll start talking about that and they'll emphasize that. And this group over here will get upset because that group over there seems to act like they're better than they are. And so this group over here will get mad at that group over there and all of a sudden you've got a church that's divided and you don't even know how it happened. i tell you how it happened. We weren't balanced. And it is tough. You try to drive from here to Atlanta without holding on to a steering wheel and see where you end up. And I don't care if they cut a straight road through with not a curve on it, not even a degree of turn in it. You just try to drive. You have to keep your hand on the wheel. Why? Because you have to keep your car in the lane or else you'll drift to the left or you'll drift to the right and you better stay in your lane because that guy driving 18-wheelers just took 35 amphetamines. He's going to run over you. So you better make sure you're in your lane. And the lane for the church is a lane of balance. It's walking with God in balance. Thirdly, another way that Satan deceives is he gets us majoring on personalities. Now the obvious church for that is Corinth. Corinth was a poster child for preacher worship. People in some, one group in Corinth said, uh, I'm of Cephas. Well, I love it when Cephas stomps on toes. You know, man, I just, I tell you what, he rips and snorts and spits to the third row and his nostrils start flaring. I tell you what, that's what we need. Good old-fashioned preaching. Bless God. <laughs> Cephas, my kind of preacher. I'm of Apollos. I just love the way Apollos ministers to people. He's so nice. Oh, when Apollos prays for me at the hospital, I feel like Jesus is in the room with me. Oh, I love Apollos. He's so calm. Cephas comes in and tells me if I wasn't living in sin, I wouldn't be sick. And Apollos comes in and, and tells me, I don't care if you are living in sin. You have no reason to be sick. I just love Apollos. I'm a Cephas. I'm a Paulus, I'm a Paul. That's what I like. Strong doctrinal preaching. Boy, Paul, I tell you what, I could listen to Paul go through the book of Romans for the rest of my life. Not just verse by verse, word by word. And, let's talk about and tonight. 
Someone said that somebody left uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones Church in, in uh, England. He was preaching through the book of Romans. They were gone for five years, and when they came back, they had only missed eight verses. <laughs> I love that strong doctrinal preaching. And then there's the Christ crowd. I don't need a preacher. I don't need a church. I've met people like that all my life. Where do you go to church? Well, you know. Uh, church got too many problems. Church full of hypocrites. Well, you know, you're not going to change anything if you come. <laughs> I, I just want to just worship Jesus by myself. Well, I'll tell you what, let's just pray that you can die and then you can go be right there and face to face with him. But if you don't love the church, you don't love Jesus. And some people say they love Jesus and they don't love the church. And I can't find that anywhere in my Bible. Now, when we get into majoring on personalities, it does three things. It's a denial of the body functioning as one. Now, can you imagine if I started preaching tonight and all of a sudden my right arm just started going off over here like this and I just was going, you know, and I'm trying to get it back over here. And, no, this arm better do what this head tells it to do. Not, I need to go see my doctor. We have one head. Not many heads. We have one head. The head of the body is Christ. And the body is to function as one. Secondly, it is a denial of what it means to be one. It's a denial of what it means to be one. One doesn't mean me. One means all of us as one. We, we live in a time when people interpret one as me. What's best for me? What do I want? Who do I like? What do I like? But one is not one. One is the body being one. I am millions of cells and blood vessels and, and muscles, but not as many muscles as I used to have, but I'm, I'm millions of those things, but I'm one. I'm just one body. Getting bigger all the time, but that's another story. It's a denial. Don't say amen on that one. <laughs> amen at the wrong place. <laughs> Number three, it's a denial of the one another's. It's a denial of the one another's. Love one another, serve one another, obey one another, pray for one another. All the one another's in the Scripture, it's a denial of that. When we get into personalities, it's a denial of one another's. When we start playing favorites, it's a denial of the one another's of Scripture. Now, this is what's going to happen in Acts chapter 6. In Acts chapter 6, the widows are going to start being upset and they're going to start murmuring and they're going to start saying I'm not being paid attention to and the devil's going to try to divide the church again. And so the, the ministers, the, the apostles have to come and say, look, we've got a priority. We have a job that we have to do. We've got to get some people to help do this thing called church. That's why we have a ministry fair. That's why we're doing what we do because for us to do what each person is supposed to do in the body, everybody in the body has to pick up a task so that the body can function and serve like it's supposed to. H have you ever, you know, been sitting somewhere and all of a sudden your leg fall asleep? Has that ever happened to you? And, uh, you, and you get up and you just kind of, you, 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 you just, you're just kind of all over the place. and you're, you're shaking it, you're just trying, you're rubbing it, you're trying to... Can I tell you that a lot of our body is asleep and we're trying to walk and we're limping and crawling. 
because some of the body's gone to sleep on their gifts and their ability to serve. And this is a problem that they had. They're dealing with personalities. Listen, folks, if we get our eyes on anything other or anyone other than Jesus, the devil has an opportunity to divide the church. If you get lopsided on doctrine, guess what? He'll get in your doctrine. If you get overboard on experiences, He will push you to exalt experiences. If you get gung-ho on your gift, He'll make you think that your gift is the only true gift to serve with. If you get sloppy on your love, you'll start thinking that only the people with mercy really care. If you get obsessed with prophecy, you'll see the Antichrist sitting right next to you. Why are y'all looking at your wives? Why would you need to look back at your husbands, you know? You see, when we get out of balance, the devil finds a crack in the door that he can walk through and he can begin to divide the body. And the, and the unity of the body is a very, very delicate thing. It is not something that you can manufacture. It's something that has to be prayed through. And it's something that God has to do in his people. Because I'll tell you, the devil loves when people choose sides. And get off on this tangent and get off on that tangent and do this and do that. And we don't function the way God wants us to function. Now let's look at the exposure of the sin. And, and look at three short phrases in verse 3, verse 8, and verse 9. Verse 3, but Peter said, verse 8, and Peter responded to her. Verse 9, then Peter said to her. Now, how did Peter know all that? The Holy Spirit gave him the ability to know it all. The Holy Spirit was there when they planned and compromised and coerced and manipulated to say we're going to do it. The Holy Spirit was there when they wrote the check and the Holy Spirit was there when they gave it. And the Holy Spirit told the preacher and the preacher told them he knew it. Isn't that interesting? One of the things John will say about me sometimes is, is that I know when there's a skunk in the woodpile. I may not know where the skunk is, but I know when there's a skunk in the woodpile. And one thing I know about what God gifts a shepherd of a church to do, and that is to see things sometimes before they happen. I'm not talking about something weird. I'm talking about the fact that God gives a shepherd the discernment that he only gives a shepherd. He gives him the discernment to see what's coming down the track that could divide and destroy the flock so that he can be ready for it. And that's what God did with Simon Peter. Turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Because I think it's the leader's responsibility to protect the flock from anything that is counterfeit, from anything that is out of balance. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Paul said in Ephesians 4, don't give the devil an opportunity. 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 12, he says, But what I am doing I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which we are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, 
No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Now catch that. They're not servants of evil. They disguise themselves as servants of righteousness whose end will be according to their deeds. Folks, you can't be naive when it comes to the church. And I have to be honest with you. There's some people I pray won't join. I pray that God protects us from anybody that would do anything that would cause division in the life of this church. I can remember a man who came to me in, in uh, Oklahoma and he wanted to join the church and I knew how he had left the church and I knew what he had done at the church that he was at and the next church that he had gone to and he came to me and said, I believe God's led me back here. I said, I believe God hadn't led you back here. He said, well, I want to come. I said, you can't. He said, you can't stop me. I said, watch me. I said, you can walk the aisle every Sunday until Jesus comes back and it will be cold in Hades before you're ever presented to this church. He said, I'll take it to the deacons. I said, knock yourself out. Because I'm not going to let anybody who is a known troublemaker come in and divide the unity of this church. That person better go get right with their pastor and with their church they left before they ever try to come in here and think they're going to run this show because this church belongs to Jesus and I will die protecting the church that Jesus died for. And that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to pray that God will protect the church. Protect it from those who want to undermine it. And the devil will do anything he can do to stop a church from moving forward. When they were confronted, they died on the spot. Layman Strauss said, I've prayed for people to die, and I have a pretty good track record. Now, I want you to look at the passage in Acts chapter 5. Peter didn't kill them. It doesn't even say that God killed them. What it says that is in a spirit-filled environment, when their hypocrisy was exposed, they dropped dead. Nobody killed them. They just dropped dead. The Spirit of God was so strong in the church, when it was exposed, they dropped dead. Ron Dunn said this, The Holy Spirit was so overwhelmingly in control that deceit could not exist in that environment. I am convinced if we ever get back to the New Testament standard and experience revival, deceit, pretense, and insincerity will be, not be able to exist in the atmosphere of the fellowship. Now, every indication is that Ananias and fire were saved, but they were out of fellowship. Now, there's three judgments. Sin is judged at the cross. Our sin is judged at the cross. Our service will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. Not only what we've done, but what we should have done. Our service will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ. But as sons, we are judged right now. All right, Lord. As sons, we are judged right now. Doesn't the writer of Hebrews say that God disciplines His children? 
We're judged now as sons. Now, go to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. You may want to hold a finger in 1 Corinthians 11 on your way by there. And then from Hebrews, go to the book of James. We're going to go to Hebrews, 1 Corinthians, and then James. I know that's not in order, but that's the way I've got it. So, Hebrews 12 and verse 5. And this is where sons are judged now. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those who the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, referring to the Lord's Supper. And what happened to those who came to the Lord's Supper? Unprepared. I think the Lord's Supper is one of the most serious things we do in the life of the church. And for some people, it's just a small cup and a little wafer. And it's a tradition, but it's not a truth. Because if it were a truth, they would come in having gotten some things right with God. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep or are dead." But if we judge ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. God's got a purpose in our discipline. God's got a purpose in dealing with us so that He can correct us and mold us into His image. James 5, James 5 and verse 19. James chapter 5. In verse 19, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Remember in Mark's gospel when Jesus cursed the barren fig tree? Why did he curse it? Because the barren fig tree was giving a hypocritical witness. It was proclaiming that it had fruit when it had none. Now, what's the result of all this? There was great fear that came over the church. Why? There's a holy God, there's a holy word, there's a holy spirit, there's a holy church, and there should be a holy fear. Great fear came over the church. A healthy church has a great fear of God, a reverence for God, an understanding of the holiness of God. God gave Ananias and Sapphira as an example as a warning. He did the same thing in Jude verse 7 about Sodom and Gomorrah. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they were in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, 
are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal life. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 10, that these things happen to them as examples to us. Listen, discipline protects us from defection. If I see that God is disciplining, then it protects me when I think, you know, I just may just want to flap my wings for a while and do my thing and live like I want to live. But if I see that God disciplines that, and if I understand that God will not let His children stray out of the yard too far, if I understand that, then I won't defect because of great fear of God. Now, here's the truth. All of us would like to be the church in the book of Acts chapter 2. Where multitudes were being added, they had all things in common, but folks, listen. And I hear a lot of people say, oh, if we could just get back to the book of Acts, if we could just get back to where the Holy Spirit was in charge and the Holy Spirit was in power and people gave everything, if people did this, okay, fine. If you want Acts chapter 2, you've got to take Acts chapter 5 too. Because you don't get one and not take the other one. The church in the book of Acts is also a church where God struck people dead for their hypocrisy. And you can't say, well, I want all that the Holy Spirit has got for me and say at the same time, but I don't want the Holy Spirit to deal with my sin or my pretension. Now, what happened? Well, people quit joining the church. Church shut down. Nobody go to a church where people are dropping dead. I mean, it's over. Nothing else happened after Ananias was fired. People too scared to come to Christ. People too scared to join the church. People too scared to be in a place where there was discipline. People too scared to be in a place where there was that much holiness. You know, that's exactly what happened, isn't it? Oh, good. I'm glad some of you have read your Bible. Acts four, uh, chapter 5 and verse 14. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on them. You know why? They found out this church meant business. They weren't playing this wasn't an act. It wasn't a performance. This church meant business, and, and those that joined meant business. And that's the New Testament church. You see, folks, you never build a church on disgruntled people. You never build a church on church hoppers. They go from one place to the next. Stay here a while, go there a while, stay here a while, go there a while. You know, every three or four or six months or whatever, they're, they're just moving around. Warren Wiersbe calls them the nomads. You say no, they get mad and they leave. <laughs> Let me tell you how you build a church. You build a church by asking God to give you people whose hearts have so been touched by the person of Jesus Christ that the only thing they care about is glorifying God. That's how you build a church. And that's what this church was. And somebody got in, a couple got in that didn't have that as their motive. 
and God pushed them out of the way. Now, every church that God has ever used has had a backdoor revival. And this is very crude, but I, I want to say it because I want you to get the point. There's an old preacher who's now since gone to be with the Lord, and I don't even remember his name, I just remember the quote. For a church to be healthy, every now and then, it needs a good vomit to get all the bugs out of the system. Isn't that what happens when you get nauseated? The bugs are coming out. I mean, the, the junk that's in you that needs is coming out of you. And the body has to have that too. That's never fun. It's never easy. But if that stuff stays inside of you, it will poison your entire body. It will infect you. That's why you have to clean the wounds out. And sometimes you have to go deeper than you want to to clean the wounds out because in that wound, if those germs get in there, it infects the body. So there was great fear. Let me ask you five questions. Number one, are you pretending to be something that you're not? Number two, is there anything that God needs to purge out of you? Is there anything that God needs to purge out of you? Is there a cleansing that needs to happen in your life? Number three, is there anyone lying to the Holy Spirit when you say you're worshiping God? Number four, is your all on the altar? And number five, are you seeking the praise of men or the power of God? Are you seeking the praise of men or the power of God? Church family, we can't have Acts chapter 2 and skip over Acts chapter 5. And that's why sometimes a church has to correct and sometimes a church has to say, you better stop doing that. That's why we've had to give some people over the last 13 years their church letters. Because they have violated what this church is about. And not being repentant and not willing to come under the authority of the church, they've been asked to leave. You say, well, mercy, we should just be forgiving and forgiving and forgiving. We should just go on and on and on and on and on. Well, when, when is how many times? Because you see, one person can infect the thousands. It only takes one cell for you to have cancer. And you can ignore it and have mercy on it and it'll kill you. Or you can say, this is what the Word says and this is what we expect. And we expect it because we love you and not only that, we care about your soul. 
and how you will stand before God one day. And if you play these games and live these lies, you will stand before God and everything in your life will be wood and hay and stubble. There will be no gold and silver and precious stone. And there has to be great fear of the holiness of God. You know, I love God and I'm glad He's my Father and I'm glad I can call Him Abba Father. And I, I'm, I'm grateful that I can have an intimate talk with Him and I can share with Him everything that's on my heart. But i got to tell you, I also have great, great fear of God. I remember a man who, while I was in youth ministry, he decided he didn't like anybody but himself. And Chairman of Deacons called me one night. And he said, um, he's on his way over to your house. He's going to call you out into the front yard. He wants to pick a fight with you. This man was a deacon, full of faith, full of wisdom, and full of the Holy Spirit. He's going to pick a fight with me in the front yard. He's so hated. He's so hated. The pastor and the staff, and anybody that agreed with the pastor and the staff, that he became full of venom. Within six months, they found a brain tumor the size of a small pea in a place where they could not operate. And in six weeks, he was dead. The last thing he said as they were taking him down the hall into the operating room as the pastor of the church was trying to minister to the family, the last words he ever spoke were, you tell that blank preacher to get the blank out of here. And he's gone. Nelson Price told me about four men at Roswell Street when he had a vision for something God wanted to do and he took them and shared that vision with him. And they told him, basically, we will fight you at every turn. This will not happen as long as we're in this church. The next month, one of them went fishing and fell out of his boat and drowned, and he was able to swim, but he drowned. A few months later, one of them was driving down I-75, heading toward work into downtown Atlanta, and he had a massive heart attack and died. The next two or three months later, Another one died, and the next one, and all four were gone in a year. And Nelson said, You know, that was a turning point for our church. Because everybody knew, because they had been working the system and they'd been working people and trying to fight and resist and causing dissension, and everybody knew they were causing dissension. He said, I want to tell you, when all four were dead in a year, everybody realized that God was fed up with it. And I can tell you story after story after story after story. Listen, folks, anything or anyone that hinders what God wants to do in a church is in more danger than they think they are. 
They may not realize it at the moment. They may believe that God's just going to ignore it. But not if it's God's church and not if it's God's work and not if it's God's will. I don't want to be standing in the way of what God wants to do in a place. Because God is building His church and I better not be trying to steal bricks while He's trying to build it. Or else I have to answer for it. The sin of bearing false witness, pretending to be something that we're not, pretending to do something that we haven't really done, pretending to have a walk that we don't really have. And God says, that's serious business. I got to tell you, there, there are times when there are things I'd like to preach, and I know quite honestly I can't stand up and preach them and be truthful. So I just don't. Because I don't think it's healthy to preach a lie. And so sometimes I just can't say some things that I really probably should say until I go and get those things right in my own life. God takes holiness seriously. Let's pray together. I know there would be a tendency tonight to view this as a negative message. But I would like you to view it as a positive message, as a positive warning.